take our Bibles tonight and be turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be there in just a moment. 1 Peter 5, that's where we were last Sunday evening. And just continuing for a week or two on the subject of really spiritual warfare and recognizing the enemy. I think it goes without saying that for the last six months um, there have been a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, from a lot of different schools of thought trying to figure out this, uh, what our president called the invisible enemy, this uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. Some people don't even believe it is. You know, some people have still not gotten out of their house in six months. So, and you got everybody in between those two spectrums, really. But the reality is, and I've said this so many times during this situation, I know that some people probably don't agree with me. I don't think anybody has it figured out. I really don't. I think people who think they know, I'm thinking now what people wrote in the first few weeks of it, the reason for it, the cause of it, and that very cause has not even been mentioned for five months because, you know, people just want to jump to having the answers. But it's not that trick, it's not that much of a trickery or it's not that, it's not that complicated to recognize the work of the invisible enemy of the devil because the Bible gives us some pretty clear direction and we're going to talk about that tonight beginning in 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's stand. If you're able to stand for the reading of the Word of God, we certainly uh, don't expect people that can't stand or causes them pain to do so, but we like to do it just as an honor to the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You know, we can't control how Satan opposes us. And we can't control how often he opposes us. Uh, Spiritual warfare is inevitable. If you believe the Bible, you believe, you know that it's inevitable. It's going to happen. What we can control, though, is how prepared we are and how we respond to spiritual attacks. A lot of times, I believe, well-meaning believers, Christians are under spiritual attack and don't even recognize it. I think all of us have had that happened before. We wonder what's going on in our life, and all of a sudden we realize maybe the devil is just beating up on me. You know, so warfare is inevitable, especially, I think, and this is just on my own personal opinion, speculation, I think especially to those who are involved in serving the Lord. It's going to be inevitable, you know, for sure. 
So we're going to talk about that tonight. Let's pray. Father, bless tonight as we study. Open our eyes. Help us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. We ask you, Lord, that you would, uh, you, Lord, would give the victory in our hearts and lives. Lord, help us to take your word seriously. Help us to believe what the Bible says. We pray that you would, Lord, uh, keep the enemy from snatching, stealing the word away before it has the opportunity to produce fruit in our lives. And Father, we live by faith because you've ordained that it would be so. And so, Lord, this is a part of life. So please help us uh, to understand what we can and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Peter encourages his readers, encourages us to resist. He said, whom, verse 9, whom? Resist steadfast in the faith. So we're to resist the devil. Um, steadfast. The word steadfast means to be strong. It's the very opposite of being weak and sort of wishy-washy and and uh, unsettled in your faith. The word the word steadfast means that you're strong, you're unmo- immovable, you're stable. About what? About truth. About your conviction of truth. Now we're not going to go to this place tonight. But I'll just say it. One of the greatest enemies, or the greatest tools, I should say, one of the greatest uh, tools in the arsenal of the devil is lies, misinformation. And so the way to combat that is with truth. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, in our next lesson. But we're to stand strong and we're to resist. To resist means that we're not passive. It means that we're opposing, we're recognizing You know, we're not even going to go tonight to that great passage in Ephesians 6 where it says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, stand. Stand therefore with your loins, girt about with truth. All this has to do about, these are are things that the devil uh, cannot stand against. He can't stand against the Lord. He can't stand against the Word of God. But he can sure defeat us in the strength of our flesh. So we're to resist the devil. He's our enemy. He's the enemy of God. And if he's not your enemy, then uh, you're on the wrong side. So we're going to look at some passages tonight and turn, first of all, a few pages to the left to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we have similar Uh, language here from James in his epistle. Look in verse 6. James writes, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, it's a quote from Proverbs, but giveth grace unto the humble. Peter used that same language. God God resisteth the proud, but giveth, giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Now, all this is about this spiritual conflict, because it talks about resisting the devil. I think it's very interesting that in verse 7, it tells us to resist the devil. In verse 6, it says, God resists the proud. We're to, we're to, so how are we to resist? Verse 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil. So the first, the first bit of advice that James gives us is to submit 
to God. Now let's think about what that means. Think about what it means in your life. What does it mean to submit to God? It means you're putting yourself under God's authority. You're putting yourself under God's um, reign in your life. You're yielding yourself. You're yielding yourself to His will, to God's will. You're yielding yourself to God's authority. You're submitting to God. Now, I'm taking the time to emphasize that because I think it's such a basic, simple thing that if we'd be honest, we're not living in, in a big part of our life sometimes. Being submissive to God. Where we're under God's authority. We only want God's will. Now you say, well, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in resisting the devil. The two go together. Submit to God, resist the devil. And sometimes we, we're, we're resisting God. And, and really in resisting God, we're submitting ourselves to the attacks of the enemy. So we're to submit ourselves to God. We have to do that intentionally. It doesn't just happen automatically. You know, if you, as you sit here tonight, I, I'm, I'm going to just make a, an assumption that every person here tonight, every single person that's old enough to understand what I'm saying, their life is totally, completely, as much as they know how, in submission to God. I have all of my life submitted to God. Now that may be, that may be asking too much. No, it's not asking too much. It's asking for what God wants. But if that were true, that doesn't mean you're going to be submitted to God in the morning or tomorrow afternoon. We have to submit intentionally. This man right here you're looking at, I have to submit to God intentionally and I have to do it consistently, regularly. Why? Because our nat my natural tendency is to, to rely upon myself, to try to put it on autopilot, to make decisions that I want for me. So I have to submit to God. We're to sum By the way, we're not just to submit to God. Philippians says, and it says we're to submit to one another. You know what that, that requires? One thing that's required to be submissive is humility. You're putting yourself under God. God is reigning. God is king. God is Lord. We're his servants. We're to submit to one another. We're to submit to those in authority. That would include the boss at work. That would include spiritual leaders. That would include parents in the home. That would include school teachers. That would include government leaders. We're to submit. We're to humble ourselves and put ourselves under those in authority. Submission to God requires denying the self-life. And I'm not, off, I'm not getting off uh, point. This all has to do with resisting the devil. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. I'd like to see the devil fleeing, wouldn't you? Submit to God means that we're denying the self-life. We're saying no to ourself. It's a part of spiritual warfare. Rebellion, which is the opposite of submission. Rebelling against your parents, rebelling against those in authority, is the very nature of the devil. And it's driven by his pride. He says, we, we saw that in the Old Testament. Pride says, I'm going to be my own 
boss. I'm going to do my own thing. Submission is like the character of Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of sinful men. We're, submission is humility. Resisting and rebellion is pride. So if we're going to if we're going to submit to God, we're going to have to if we're going to have if we're going to resist the devil, we have to learn how to submit to God. And really, I think uh, there, we'll come back to this subject in a, in a little bit, but I think pride and rebellion open us up to the attacks of the devil. It's like putting a big tar- you know, when I is a foolish prideful, selfish, immature teenager when I rebelled against my parents, when I, when I was, had a bad attitude against my mother's authority and I had a bad attitude about the authority figures in school and I just had a bad attitude. It's like putting a target on your back. The devil, you're an open target. And, if that, and, and by the way, pride and selfishness, all this all goes in together. So we submit because rebellion opens us up to the devil's attack. But we also submit because our only victory can come from God. You and I can't whip the devil. But God has already whipped him. And he whips up on him every day. So we're to resist the devil. Now let's go to another passage. We're just talking about, um, go to the left to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This, we're talking about angels. For those of you who hadn't been here the last couple of weeks, we're going through a series of doctrinal lessons, and we're nearing the end of these subjects. But we've talked about a variety of doctrinal subjects, and one of them is angels. What does the Bible say about angels? The first lesson was more about angels in general, both the, the uh, holy angels, those who faithfully serve the desires of the king, uh, then we t- and we talked also about fallen angels and where they came from and Lucifer and how he was dismissed from his responsibility. So we've talked about, but now that just leads us to me to this matter of, of talking about spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse, I'm going to read two verses and we'll come back to this, uh, the larger context in a moment. But chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 10. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes I forgave it in the person of Christ. Semicolon. Um, I emphasize that because I think it's important to know a little bit about punctuation and where sentences end. And the reason I say that is because the, verse, the famous verse, verse 11, is a part of verse 10. Right? They're they're in the same sentence. The sentence continues. Verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's a very revealing verse of Scripture, really. Satan wants to get an advantage over us. Paul wrote this. It's God's word. And it's interesting that Paul included himself. Look at the pronouns in verse 11. 
lest Satan should get an advantage of us. I have that little two-word, two-letter word circled, us. For, and here's the next one, for we. So Paul included himself in this. He said Satan wants to get an advantage in us. Now, let's think together about this and what does that mean? What does it mean to have an advantage, to get an advantage? Let's think of it in terms of, of sports. Um, there are very little about sports that I like anymore, but uh, that's another subject for another day. Um, but in athletic competition, a team would do well to seek to get an advantage, right? For instance, in most sporting events, the home team has an advantage. You have the, you have the people cheering. You have the atmosphere. You're more familiar with the goals in basketball. You know, you, you have the refs you use and pay off regularly. They're just ways you can get the advantage in, in sports. And uh, I can remember when I would play football um, that the captains would go out to the center of the field before the game and then have a coin toss. And whoever won the coin toss, heads or tails, uh, would generally say, we elect to receive. They get their choice. They're gonna re they can either kick the ball off and be on defense or they can start off on offense. We're going to get the ball first. And that's an advantage to get the ball first. And sometimes, though, if you lost the toss, uh, then the, the guy who lost the toss, he gets to choose which end of the field he defends. And you say, well, what difference does it make? It depends on how, where, the, how the, where the sun is shining from. If you've got the sun in your face, it depends on the wind. If you've got a wind, it's better to have the wind at your back than coming toward you. You're always looking for ways to get an advantage on your opponent. In volleyball, the server has, should have a distinct advantage unless they serve into the net every time. That doesn't really help the cause. In tennis, the server should have the advantage. So we're look, So that's what I'm thinking about this because we are in this competition in essence. Look at it like this. We have an enemy that opposes us. Like it? You don't have to like it. You don't have to believe it even. But it's reality. You, we have an enemy that opposes us. And the word of God says we don't want to give Satan an advantage over us. You never want your opponent to have the advantage. Now, here's the question for you. Here's the, let's think for a, a little bit tonight. Spiritually, in your life, if you're talking about God, if you're talking about the devil, normally, who should have the advantage? Does the devil have the advantage over us? No. No, he does not. I mean, the Bible here says we don't want Satan to get the advantage. To me, that implies he doesn't have the advantage, right? We have the spiritual advantage. We, and if, the more we understand this, the more we try to put this to work in our lives, the more we see, you know, the, the reality of it, we have the advantage. We're on the winning side. If God be for us, who can be against us? But we have an enemy who wants to get the advantage over us. Now, you can, I want you to think about this tonight because you could be sitting here tonight and your spiritual life is not really going in a good direction. And tonight, you could learn something that could help you um, 
in your, in your spiritual journey. So what, is, what do we see here in 2 Corinthians 2.11? Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, I'm not going to do this, but if I were to just say, okay, let's just hit the pause button, and let's just go around the room and just ask people to say, what do you think some of his devices are? And a lot of people in this room would have a good idea. They'd have something to contribute. I believe he uses this. I believe he uses that. I believe the device that Satan uses against me is my husband or my wife. No, I wouldn't say that, but... But you know what? Some people tonight would say, I don't know. I don't know how the devil works. I don't know what he uses. But listen, here's what the Bible says. We are not ignorant. Ignorant means we don't know. We don't want to be ignorant about the devil's devices. Or as some people would say, ignorant. But it's all the same word. Satan uses his devices to get an advantage over us. Lest Satan should get an advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, when you think of a device, you and I, we think of your phone or your tablet. Those are the not kind of... Now, those are maybe things the devil's using, come to think of it, in your life. But the word actually has to do with the way the devil operates the things he it's like the best i can understand the the word here is it means his the perception the thought processes the way the devil is working against you he's always he is always from what i understand in the bible he is always looking for a way to gain some advantage some leverage to get his foot in the door. We don't want to be ignorant of his schemes. We want to have discernment. We want to have wisdom about the ways he gets the advantage. Because if we're not careful, if we're not aware, we can find we're ourselves being defeated and even ensnared. That's a Bible word. Trapped. Ensnared without even knowing it's taking place. So what are some of his devices? I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about a few of them. The first one is found right in our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But I'm going to back up a little further and begin reading in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 2, 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Now it's generally believed that this was a specific situation in the church at Corinth that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man in the church that was guilty of immorality. And Paul instructed the church to, to use church discipline to put that person out of the church, that he would learn his lesson, and it worked. And he got right. He came to repentance. That's who it's referring to in verse 6. Verse 7 says, So that contrarywise ye to the church ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, become just totally depressed and, and overcome with sorrow. Verse 8, Wherefore I beseech you, Paul says to them, 
that you would confirm your love toward him. Verse 9, For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. This was a part of their obedience, a part of their follow-up. Verse 10, To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes, to the church, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Notice, again, the sentence continues, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. So what what was Paul talking about? What was Paul referring to saying, we're going to forgive this person. You forgive them. I forgive them. I forgive them because you have forgiven them. We're forgiving this person lest Satan should get an advantage over us for we're not ignorant of his devices. What do you think one of Satan's devices is? A guess? Exactly. Unforgiveness. A pop quiz. Unforgiveness. You said, preacher, do you really believe that unforgiveness could give the devil a foothold in your life? Absolutely. I mean, we're just looking at the Bible. We're just reading the Bible. We're looking at what the Bible says. The failure to forgive someone, the refusal to forgive someone, gives the enemy an advantage. Verse 10 indicates to me, it says, Paul says, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. If you forgive them, I forgive them. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for it was for your sake forgave I it in the person of Christ. You know what that tells me? He said, you, you forgave them, so I'm forgiving them. We're for, forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is a choice. We choose to forgive people. And what do we base that on? We base it on God's forgiveness. I mean, I have an advantage over you. No one has ever done anything to hurt me. So I can't personally relate to this. I've never been, no one's ever stabbed me in the back. Nobody's ever talked bad about me. Never. But I've heard about such things. Now I speak in in jest. But you know what I have to think about when I think about forgiving others? I don't, if if I'm using wisdom, I don't think about how much they hurt me. I think about how much God has forgiven me. How much God has forgiven me. I know God has forgiven me of so many things. Thoughts I've had in my mind, words I've said, hurt people I've hurt, laws that I've broken, attitudes of arrogance and pride and selfishness. God has forgiven me of so many things. And you know what? He's forgiven me of many more things that I don't even know about than those that I do know about. And the God that I have sinned against looks at me right here tonight before you as being a saint, washed, cleansed, 
absolutely pure and holy before God. Isn't that something? And so how am I going to hold something against somebody else when God has forgiven me of so much? Right? Unforgiveness. Sometimes, I say it's a choice because sometimes people don't want to forgive. I've heard people say lots of times, I just can't forgive. Lots of times, different people say, I just can't forgive that person. And, I, and you know what? I think it's, it's not always I can't. Sometimes it's I just don't want to. Right? You've got to want to forgive them. Now, I'm going to spend a little more time on this subject. I want to go with me if you, to a place that if you've never been there, you had not been there recently, you'll enjoy this. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And I don't want to, I mean, this, this passage deserves a sermon in itself, and we're not going to do that tonight, I don't think. But in verse 21, Peter asked a very important question. Then came Peter to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? We have to believe that, I mean, I have to believe this, that Peter was legitimate in his concern. I mean, how often... Teach us this. You're our teacher. You're our, our mentor, our Lord, our Savior. Tell us. You have all wisdom. How many times? Seven times? I mean, that, that probably, he was probably thinking that's a lot of stuff, right? Forgive him seven times. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. That's a lot, isn't it? Seventy times seven. What is that? Seven oh seven? Seven, seven, seven. 490 times. 490. Who's counting, right? You say, I'm counting. <laughs> and then he tells this related illustration. Verse 23. Let's read through this. Please stay focused on this if you could. Therefore, have, it has to do with what he just said about forgiveness. Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king which would take account of his servants? So you have a king, and the king has servants, and the servants are going to give an account to him. Verse 24. And when he had begun to reckon with these different servants, one, one of those servants, was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. And we don't know exactly how much it is. Some people have tried to figure it out. But let me just say it's a bunch of money, a whole lot of stuff. He found out this, this one of his servants owed him 10,000 talents. But look what happened, verse 25. For, or but for as much as he had not to pay, the servant didn't have any money. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children. And all that he had and payment to be made. He didn't have the money to pay his debt. 
The Lord says, the master said, you're going to sell everything you got. You're going to sell your wife, sell your kids. Now, this is not something you can do, by the way, so don't be thinking like that. Sell your kids. Everything you have, sell your house, sell your cars, sell everything, sell your phone. And you're going to pay what you can. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, humbled himself, saying, Lord, have patience with me. Please be patient with me and I will pay thee all. Just give me a break. Give me time. Give me mercy. I'll pay you the all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. Just struck him in his heart and he and loosed him and forgave him the debt. He didn't even have to pay it back. He just forgave the debt. Isn't that something? Wouldn't you just be saying, praise God? Although I was thinking about getting rid of those kids. No. <laughs> Praise God. I mean, he forgave me everything. Everything. That's wonderful. Verse 26. Or verse 27. Then, I'm still, I'm still not the right place. Verse 28. But the same servant, the servant that just got forgiven for everything. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. One of his equals which owed him a hundred pence. Nothing. I mean, this is trivial. He owed him very little. But he found out he owed him something. Now notice how he behaved. Verse 28. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. Here's a guy who just got forgiven of an debt that was impossible for him to ever forgive and he somebody owes him some spare change let's say maybe 20 bucks can you see him he's got his hands around his throat you're gonna pay me what you owe me you see it every time I say that this has nothing to do with the sermon. Every time I say that, I remember being in an assembly with Larry Taylor one time, an evangelist, and he was telling a story about a student who went to see the principal. And this principal had him around the neck and saying, he, Larry was like, Larry Taylor, Larry Taylor. I believe the devil's got a hold of you. Larry said, I do too. <laughs> that goes way back. It's not in my notes. The same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants in verse 28, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And the fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. 
Look up in verse 26. Is this not the same language that this first servant had? Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Verse 29. Now this same servant is having someone who owes him a trivial debt. Saying have patience with me and I'll pay thee all. Look in verse 30. And he would not. But went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now just so we remember, let's not forget this. All of this has to do with the question that Peter asked Jesus. How many times if my, someone offends me, should I forgive them? Seven times? So this man who'd been give, forgiven everything is not willing to forgive this person who owes him a little. Verse 31, so when his fellow servants, these other servants, saw what was done, they witnessed this, they were very upset, very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after they had called him, said unto him, this is what he said to the man that he had forgiven so much of, he said, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. You asked me, you requested it because you desired it. I forgave you all that debt. Verse 33, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant even as I had pity on thee? I mean, he really raked him over the coals. Gave him what's far. He says, what, how, how wrong is this? I forgave you so much and you go out there and you got this guy that just owes you a little bit and you won't forgive him. You're wicked. He didn't say, he, you know, I don't, he, this, this king did not say, I understand he hurt you. I understand if you never forgive him. No, he said, you're a wicked servant. This is wicked. And it, by the way, it is wicked. When we've been forgiven so much, it is wicked not to be willing to forgive others. Verse 34 says, And his Lord was wroth, very angry, and delivered him, delivered this first servant to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. He is, he is going to be tormented until he pays his debt. Now that is all a very interesting story. To me, I never read it that I'm not just really fascinated by it. But verse 35 is what we want to notice. So likewise, Jesus said. So likewise, he's talking to Peter. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. If you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Isn't that an amazing thing? This, this, is, this is not stuff we make up. God put this in the book. I mean, it's in the Word of God. It's, it's God's inspired Word. Peter, how many times, Peter says, how many times should we forgive somebody who wrongs us? Seven times? I mean, is that acceptable? Is that, was that, is that something we ought to work toward? He said, Peter, I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter how many times. Seventy times, seventy, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times someone does you wrong, someone hurts you, someone has offended you, someone owes you, doesn't matter how many times. And if you who've been forgiven of so much refuse to forgive 
those who have wronged you so little. Then he says, just like this man was tormented, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. If you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. To me that means every person, every trespass. Isn't that something? You say, well, how do you do that? How do we do that? We do it, number one, we do it by faith. We do it by faith. We don't do it by feeling. We do it by faith. You know, please don't be offended by this, but we got a bunch of soft Christians in our day. They, everything has to feel good. I got to feel like it. You know, I gotta, it's not about our feeling. It's about doing what God says, about obeying him. We forgive them. Go with me, if you would, please, to the book of Ephesians. Verse 30, uh, chapter 4 and verse 31. I'm going to end up here and we'll pick up this up, up next week. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Get it all out of your life. All bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all evil speaking. Be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now I want, to, I want to end on that note because to me that is such an important passage having to do with how we forgive, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. If a person is hurt, if a person feels like they've been wronged, if a person is uh, unforgiving, and they tend to focus on their hurts, it's just, it's like a trap. It's like, it's like you're never, you can't ever get out of it. What, is, what should our focus be? Our focus should be on, as I said earlier, on God's forgiveness for us. That's what we focus on. Not a person in this room deserved to go to heaven. Not a person in this room deserves access to God's throne room. Deserves the privilege of calling God our Father, not a one of us. You know why we do that? Because Jesus Christ took upon his body every sin we've ever committed and died in our place. I'm not, I'm not able to serve God because I deserve it. I'm able to serve God because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And he's forgiven me. I, I have a hard time forgiving myself sometimes. And I remember stuff. 
But as the way I understand the Bible, he don't even remember it. When he forgives it, he forgets it. Isn't that an amazing thing? And I'm not, you know, I'm, I mean this in all sincerity. I, I miss a lot of stuff, but I, I never, ever remember God ever saying, hey, you remember that thing you did 30 years ago and I forgave you? I just want to bring that up and see if you're still thinking about it. He never brings stuff up. It's all under the blood. Washed, cleansed, spotless, right? We focus on what Christ has forgiven us of. The way I, the, the, the occasion that this became real, first became real to me, and it's been something we've revisited a lot of times over the years, was right after I got saved. And this is just my testimony. It comes to my mind when I'm thinking about this. But my mom and dad didn't have a good marriage. I lived with my mother. My dad died when I was 18. And he lived a very rough life. He was a, he was a drunkard. And um, we didn't have a good relationship. And when I got saved, I remember hearing teaching and preaching about forgiveness. And as I heard it, it just made me realize that I had some things in my heart against my dad and he'd been dead at that time for three years. But I still had some ill feelings toward him. But believing that what we're talking about tonight is true, believing that we're to forgive everyone who's wronged us, I just went through that process and just said, God, I want to forgive my dad. He's not here for me to talk to. But everything, he's, he, he embarrassed me in many ways publicly. We couldn't bring friends home from school because of the way he'd be. And a lot of people in this room know that kind of a life. So I'm not saying I had it rougher than anybody else. But I'm telling you, that's the only, that's the only thing. I never remember him coming to ball games to see me play. But by faith, I said, God, I just want to forgive my dad for everything he ever did wrong against me. And you know what? I meant it. And from that point, I started having a love for my dad that I never even really had as a teenager. But I was lost as a teenager. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, if we want... And by the way, I didn't even mention this. Jesus said this. Jesus said, when you stand to pray, you forgive people. Because if you won't forgive them, what did he say? I'm not going to forgive you. Didn't he say that? You don't forgive them, I'm not going to forgive you. You say, how do we do that? We do it by faith. We do it because we've been commanded to do it. We do it because we focus on how undeserving we are of forgiveness. Does that make sense? You say, I want a different plan. There's not a different plan. That's the only one I know. But it works. Sometimes we forget how undeserving we are of God's mercy and God's grace. But I'm telling you, and I, you know, we've been through some things 
and over the years, people who's turned their back on us, people who've hurt us, people who've walked out on us. You, you say you got anything against any of them? Some of them, but not all of them. No. No. But it's not because I'm a good person. It's not because I'm a spiritual person. It's because I, I think if God can forgive me, then I can forgive them. And he helps us do that, right? Now, if you're here tonight, and I intended to finish this message, but there's several other points. So we're just going to wrap this up. But if you're here tonight, I want you to know that one of the devices that Satan uses to get an advantage on us is unforgiveness. Paul says, you forgave them, I forgive them, lest Satan should get an advantage on us because we're not ignorant of his devices. He uses unforgiveness. It's very common. And so if you're here tonight and you are forgiven, thank God for that. If you're here tonight and you just need to be reminded of how we need to be forgiving, then let's take God at his word. If you're here tonight and you realize there's someone that you have not forgiven tonight, trust God for the grace to say, God, I want to extend to them forgiveness because you've extended forgiveness to me. And the forgiveness that God has extended to me far outweighs any forgiveness I could give to anybody else. And if you're here tonight and you're not forgiven, hear me now. You're not saved. You don't know the Lord. You need help, and Jesus Christ died that you could have that help. You ought to come to him tonight. It would be a great night to know what it is to be forgiven. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. With our heads bowed this evening and with our eyes closed, Our Father, as we come before you tonight, it's just with a lot of gratitude for your forgiveness. Lord, we're just like that, that servant who owed such a debt, such an impossible debt. And yet one day, when we realized what a debt that we owed, you had compassion and mercy and you forgave us at all. We thank you for that. God, I pray tonight for those in this room that have never seen, really understood the debt they owe. They don't know what it's like to really be forgiven. I pray you'd work in their hearts. Father, I pray tonight for those of us who are saved, help us tonight by grace to forgive those who've wronged us, to be willing to forgive based on your forgiveness in our life. Lord, we don't want to give Satan any advantage in our life. You've given us the advantage. We don't want him to get an advantage. 